I just got the idea for this series weeks ago. I was working out, looking at the, I was on an elliptical listening to music, so I didn't, and the screen in front of me was on, but I didn't know what I was playing until a commercial came on for the new Captain America, the Civil War movie. And when I looked at it, I just thought, wow, it's strange, because in this growingly, growing secularized culture that we live in, it's like, you know, we want to move God and any kind of miraculous out of the human discussion. And yet, by the same token, so like every time I go to the Warren to see a movie, the upcoming attractions feature usually a movie about either the end of the world or a superhero. You know, I wonder why that is. And I think it's because deep inside of us, we all, number one, know that the world cannot continue as it is. I hope that doesn't come as news. There, there isn't some sort of, I mean, when you think about this, we're trillions, $20 trillion in debt. We can't keep relationships together. We're free-falling morally, free-falling spiritually, free-falling. I mean, look, in the political landscape, I, I noticed that people on both ends of the political spectrum, all ends, are kind of looking at what's going on, shaking their head. And beyond that, it's not just American, it's global. We look at the whole world and we realize it cannot go on like this. And so I think the reason why there are so many movies about that is deep down within, perhaps in a place that we don't articulate, there is a yearning for someone who is not limited by the things that limit us and someone who can do things that we can't do. And then also I think we have an internal knowledge that the world just isn't going to continue the way it is, that there isn't going to be some sort of grand solution that we're going to come up with. The odd thing about it is the more we seem to learn about science and technology, just the more trouble we seem to get into, right? That's our world. Well, I want to talk about that today because as I was on the elliptical that day, it hit me that there is a superhero and twice in the Bible, he is called a captain. In fact, one of those times is what I'm going to talk about this morning. In the book of Hebrews, he is called the captain of our salvation. In the book of Joshua, he's going to, he is called, and we're going to be talking about that the last week of the series, he is called the captain of the Lord's army. Now, my question for us today is where are we headed? Because when you look at the world, the landscape, the things that are happening in the world today, the question could be asked exactly what are we headed for? And if you were to back me into a corner this morning and say, Mark, where are things headed? I would give you this one word answer. Depends. Depends on who you are. Because there are two options. And, and you need to understand real quickly, I'm not talking about heaven or hell. I mean, by extension, that's out there. But that's not what I'm talking about. I, we, we are headed for something eschatologically. And it's two different outcomes. And I want to talk about those today. Um, how do I know that? I know it because of a book in the Bible called Revelation. And if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to it now. It's the last book of the Bible. And in Revelation, it is, it's a very unusual book. It's, it's, in fact, very unusual, especially by New Testament standards. In the book of Revelation, Stephen set this up a little bit last week, so I won't take a whole lot of time with it. You have a guy who is a pastor. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He was one of the first that Jesus called. He was a young man when Jesus called him. He was a fisherman. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he became a great church leader. And ultimately, he became pastor of a church in Asia Minor at a place called Ephesus. When he was 90 years old, the Roman government decided that he was giving them way too much trouble, and they decided to banish him. Every time I think about that, I think I would still like to be causing a devil trouble when I'm 90. <laughs> and so they, they tried to boil him in oil, but they couldn't quite pull that off. And they decided to just banish him to a cold rock pile in the Aegean Sea. I tell you that so that when you hear that John was on the island of Patmos, I don't want you to think he was down in St. Thomas. I mean, he, he was, he was in, a, he was in a, a junk pile. He was in a, a, a quarry, a trash heap in the Aegean Sea. 
But along came, came Jesus, and we read that. That's one reason why you get, it's kind of interesting when you open the book of Revelation, if you have a red-letter Bible, after all this black ink from the book of Acts and the epistles, all of a sudden you get into this wide expanse of red ink, and that's because Jesus is talking in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says this, and this is what's salient to what I brought up a moment ago about how I know where we're headed. Jesus said to John, write the things that you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen in the future. That's what makes Revelation very special, is that Revelation tells us about the things that will happen. I'm interested in the verb there, because Jesus didn't say to John, write down the things that could happen, the things that may happen, the things that are likely to happen. Jesus said to John, write down the things that will happen. See, that is what God does. God, look at this. This is one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord. That would be be tantamount to him saying today, I'm the boss. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. Now, verse 9 is very special to me. God says, everything I prophesied has come true. And now I will prophesy again. Look at this next sentence. I will tell you the future before it happens. That is a very powerful statement. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who says, well, I like studying the Bible, but I don't like prophecy. I'm always amazed at that statement. I know the person who said that's very naive because 25 to 30% of the Bible is prophecy. And nearly half of that has come true already. That's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. What's significant about that is Dr. Peter Stoner who was the head of the mathematics department at Pasadena Pasadena City College, later moved to uh, Westmont College and was the head of the science department. But early on, he was interested in the prophecies of Jesus and the likelihood of them coming true. And so he had a large group of students that he shared a research project with. And his research project was just to look at eight of the prophecies concerning Jesus' birth. Now, there are many more than eight prophecies about Jesus' birth. For instance... Um, we learn from the book of Genesis he was going to come from the tribe of Judah. We learn uh, from Numbers 24 that there's going to be a star associated with his birth. We learn from Micah chapter 5 that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. So there's so many prophecies about Jesus being born. Dr. Stoner decided to take just eight of those and, the, and, and to begin to look at the likelihood of all eight prophecies coming true in the life of one person. And here's what, cut to the chase, I think I told you this last Christmas, here's what his research project found out, that the likelihood of just eight of those prophecies about Jesus' birth coming true would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, to give you a tangible sense of what one in 10 to the the 17th power would be like, um, it would be like if you took the state of Texas and you covered the state of Texas in silver dollars, two feet deep and you marked one of them, and you blindfolded a man and told him to walk throughout the state of Texas, the likelihood of all the prophecies about Jesus coming true in one person are equal to the likelihood of that blindfolded man walking across the state of Texas. By the way, I just drove across Texas last week. I do need to let you know that from the northern tip to the southern tip, it is 894 miles. And from El Paso to Shreveport, it is 821 miles. Texas is a big state. Now, just eight of the prophecies about Jesus' birth coming true would be equal to a man walking all over the state of Texas, blindfolded, with one marked silver dollar in a 
so in, the, in a land of silver dollars, two feet thick, finding it. So, I mean, it's just, of course, it's ridiculous. And this is one of my problems that I have with so-called science as it relates to origins. See, here's the thing. A lot of times when I say I believe in creation, evolutionists will say, well, you're anti-science. No, no, no I, love, I love science. I love science until it starts talking about origins because when it talks about origins, it doesn't follow its own rules. I don't know if you know this or not. And I don't, boy, I don't have time to get on soapbox this morning. But when you, when you think about science in regard to origins, intelligence can never be part of the equation because by rule, by the, rule there are, you know, by the rules of those who set up the rules of science, intelligence can never be part of the equation. That's always, it's always a miraculous thing. That would be like someone who lived way away from civilization, who's never seen anything mechanized, walking up and seeing a 747, and someone asking him, how do you think that 747 got here? And he said, I think it was built. And they would say, I'm sorry, that answer is not acceptable. You'll have to come up with something else, which is how he came up with the ridiculous, idiotic idea that we all got here by accident. But that's for another day. Now, here's what God is saying. God is saying, everything I prophesied has come true. And now God is saying, again, before it happens, I will tell you what's going to happen. Now, every once in a while, someone will say to me, God predicts the future. That is not true. God does not predict the future. See, anybody, anybody can predict. And I turn on the television and flip channels. That's what men do. I turn on cha- television and I flip channels. I, I get over to, you know, um, CNBC, and they're predicting which stocks are going to be, you know, which stocks are going to be up, which stocks are going to be down, where the market is going to be. I flip over to my beloved ESPN, and they're predicting who's going to win the game. All year long, they have all the talking heads, the former jocks, everybody sitting there saying, oh, this, per- this team's going to win, that team's going to win. Actually, right before the Super Bowl, they said, give me a score. And, I, and then I go over to Entertainment Tonight. They're predicting who's going to win the Oscars. I go over to the Weather Channel. We Kansans love that, don't we? <laughs> predicting the weather in Kansas. I mean, I just came back from Palm Springs. That's got to be the easiest job in the world to predict the weather at Palm Springs. It's going to be 100 degrees today. It's going to be 100 degrees tomorrow. You know, we don't live in that world. But we get on the Weather Channel. They're predicting what's going to happen. Anybody can predict the future. But God doesn't predict the future. He foretells the future. See, if I'm watching ESPN the night before the Super Bowl and a bunch of people are sitting there predicting what they think the scores are going to be, that's one thing. If 2,000 years ago somebody said, in America there's going to be a game where 22 guys, 11 on each team, are going to go up and down a field 100 yards long with a bag of zipped-up air, and by the way, there's going to be a team called the Dallas Cowboys and the New England Patriots, and there's going to be a Super Bowl, and, there's going to, and this is the final score, that would be different than predicting the night before the Super Bowl. And, then, and that's what God does. I mean, when God talks about end-time events, and I'll share this with you, especially next week, because next week we're going to be looking, if you've ever wondered about the tribulation and the Antichrist and some of that stuff, I'm going to talk about how it works practically next week. We're going to get away from the sensational, and we're just going to lay down, we're going to lay down how it's going to work. But the weird thing about the book of the Revelation is I see that God put things in there that wouldn't even have been realistic until 10 years ago, maybe five years ago. So that's what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before. I'm not going to predict I am going to foretell, and that's why I know. Um, We're still in the introduction. I'm just kind of laying down some things that you're going to need to know before we get into today's talk. Guys, the human race is headed toward two directions, and here's something that's really important in understanding those two directions. When we talk about Jesus coming back, Jesus isn't just coming back one time. He is coming back two times. The first time that Jesus is coming back, he is coming back to get us, those of us who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I know. 
He's coming back to get us. There will be a seven-year period of time called the tribulation in which the world will experience the worst things that have ever happened. And guys, let me tell you, I think one of the, one of the things that's going to make the tribulation so bad, we'll talk about this next week, is we live in a world that is increasingly godless. I mean, it's like every time we read the news, we find out, you know, it hasn't been long since. Remember the kid that prayed, you know, he scored a touchdown, he kneeled in the, kneeled in the end zone, they threw the flag on him for unsportsmanlike conduct for praying? I mean, Recently, there was a kid picked up by the sheriff's department or accosted by the sheriff's department because he was sharing scripture with friends at school. So we live in a world that's growingly hostile toward God. And you know what God's going to do, guys? I mean, I could be talking to somebody here. You could be watching on television. You could say, well, hey, I agree with that. I don't like God in the public concourse. Well, I'll tell you what you're going to experience in tribulation is that God is going to say, you want me to step out of the room? I'll step out of the room. People often ask about tragedies happening in the world and say, where was God? How would you like to be in a world where God really does absent himself? Because you read about the horrific things that happened in the tribulation. That's what's going down during that time. So Jesus is coming the first time to get his people. That is God's MO. When Jesus was preaching on the earth, he talked about the times that were going to be like the times when he comes back. And he gave two examples. He said, as it was in the days of Noah and as it was in the days of Lot. What's similar between those two situations? Well, number one, it was a time of extreme wickedness. Number two, it was a time when God said, enough, I'm raining down judgment. But the third thing that's highly significant, and in both situations, is that God came and rescued his people out of judgment. In Noah's case, it was the ark. In Lot's case, it was the angels that came that got him out of Sodom before fire and brimstone reigned. So the idea that Jesus is coming back for his own, it's not surprising. That's God's MO. Before he rains down judgment, it is typical of him to get his people out. This is what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 14 when he said to his disciples, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. So get this. Here's the biggest distinction of all. The first time Jesus comes, it is to get his people and take them to where he is. The second time Jesus is coming back, he is coming back as king of kings and lord of lords, and he is going to stay on the earth, and we're going to stay with him, and we're going to experience the world the way it was always meant to be experienced in the beginning. Let me just tell you this. We are not headed for the end. We are headed for the beginning. That's the good news to me as I open the book of Revelation. Now, there's one more thing that I need to cover in introduction, and that is that some of you studied the Bible and you say, Mark, I know that there's an expression or a similar expression that occurs many times in the Bible, and it's an expression that says that these things are going to happen in the last days, in the last times. And so one of the questions I've been asked ever since I've been a kid preacher is, are we living in the last days? We have been living in the last days for 49 years as of the first week of June. How do I know that? Because of what Jesus said. In his message on the end times called the Olivet Discourse, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21 verse 24, Jesus was talking about what was going to happen with the nation Israel, which is kind of an indicator of where we are. And he said this, he said that the Jewish people will be sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. And that, that happened. And Jerusalem, look at that, specifically. Notice he didn't say Israel. And Jerusalem 
will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Now, it's interesting because in 1948, we saw something amazing happen that the Bible forecasts as far back as all the prophetic books, but especially the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah. And that is that in the last days that God would bring Israel back and give them their own land again. You realize that really didn't happen for 2,500 years. Now, when you think about a nation not having sovereignty for 2,500 years, the likely of that nation ever having sovereignty again is about, is about 1 in 10 to the 17th power, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe less likely. But in 1948, Israel became a nation. God bless Harry Truman. The United States of America was the first nation to recognize Israel. Harry Truman did it against the wishes of his Secretary of State, George Marshall, and against all the feelings of the, United Na- of the American team at the United Nations. Kind of by his lonely, God bless Harry Truman, Harry Truman recognized Israel as a state in 1948. But I've, I've listened to a lot of Jewish leaders, especially in regard to the birth of Israel and the development of Israel as a nation. I was listening to a general the other day, and he said, we pretty well left Jerusalem alone. It's kind of interesting. They had Tel Aviv. It was a capital. It was everything they could do just to hold everything together. So it was like, well, you know, and every every year for hundreds of years, the Jewish people have been saying next year in Jerusalem. But now, even though they were so close to Jerusalem, they sort of left it alone. Until 1967, this is so interesting, and I wish I could talk to you about it for a long time. Maybe I will someday. But in 1967, there was something called the Six-Day War in, in June, June of that year. And uh, I think it was Yitzhak Shamir who was prime minister of Israel for a time. But I think he said, you know, most people think it was a six-day war. But he said it was a two-day war against Egypt. It was a two-day war against Syria. And it was a two-day war against Jordan. And what had happened in 1964, um, Syria or Jordan had blocked off some of the waterways into Jerusalem, tried to cut off the water supply, and the Israelis had to do something about it. And that caused a lot of tension, even more tension in that region than ever. So that's what led to the six-day war. And on the first day of the Six-Day War, the Israelis took out the Egyptian Air Force on the ground. And in the next two days, after the first two days of the Six-Day War, they dealt with Syria. Well, they didn't really want to get into it with Jordan, but Jordan decided they were going to do it anyway. And Jordan attacked Israel. And because of that, Israel defended themselves against Jordan. And as they defended themselves against Jordan, they, they got more and more ground until finally they got right up to the city of Jerusalem. And General Mordecai Hot was there, and, and it was so interesting. I love I loved the, the walkie-talkie statements that he made. He said, first of all, we are sitting on the ridge. We are seeing the old city. A few minutes later, he said, we are going in. And in the middle of the afternoon, he said, the Temple Mount is our, in our hands. I repeat, the Temple Mount is in our hands. As of June 7, 1967, we are and have been in the last days. So have we, are we in the last days? Been there 49 years, according to Jesus. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be in Gentile hands until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. By the way, next year's Jubilee. I'm not prophesying anything. It's just interesting. Jubilee was always a time of setting people free and restoring what was taken away. That's next year. All that's introduction. Because right now I want to take you to the book of Revelation. From time to time, people have said, well, Revelation is a hard book to understand. So here's what I'd like for you to do. If you have a Bible in your hands, I want you to take the book of Revelation because Revelation is divided into sections. And when you understand those sections, 
It will help you understand what is going on. So if you have Revelation open, find chapters 1 through 3 and just hold them for a moment. Because when you hold Revelation chapters 1 through 3, you have what John was told by Jesus to be the things that are. In Revelation chapter 1, that's Stephen's message from last week, you have Jesus appearing to John. In Revelation 2 and 3, you have messages to seven churches that existed contemporaneously in Asia Minor. When you get into chapters 4 and uh, let's do something for a moment. Take chapters 4 and 5 and hold them together, and then take chapters 6 through 18 and hold them together. Hold hold 4 and 5 in your left hand and hold 6 through 18 in your right hand. Now, let let me tell you what's happening right here. Chapters 4 and 5 are the same seven years as chapters 6 through 18. But chapters 4 and 5 are what's going on in heaven, and chapters 6 through 18 are the tribulation and the things that are going on on the earth. Now, again, the same seven years. It's just what's happening in heaven and what's happening on the earth. That's why I'm telling you we're headed two directions Some of us, God willing, will be in heaven. Hopefully all of us will be in heaven experiencing what's going on there. And then in 6 through 18, you have the seven years of tribulation and all the things that happen there. Now, when you get to 19 through 22, that's heaven. That's Jesus coming back. And that's how things are going to be in the kingdom in the eternal state. So that's the book of Revelation. With that in mind, I want to do something today. I want us to go into chapters 4 and 5. And I want us to see what is going on in heaven when earth is going through hell. Um, sometimes the book of Revelation is, it feels like it's written in code, but it's a code that's easily broken when you know the rest of the Bible. So here's what I want us to do. Very clearly, it's, it's understood that we're talking about what happens right after, and I hate to use this term because it means so many things to many different people. It's right after what many of you will know of as the rapture. That's just a word taken from the Latin that simply means Jesus coming to take us to heaven. But some of the language that we're going to see in chapter 4 is unpacked for us in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So I want us to read something that perhaps you've heard before. It's the statement from 1 Thessalonians about when Jesus is going to come back for us. Here we go, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever, precisely as he promised in John 14. Now, when Jesus comes back the first time, it is to take us to heaven, and then those who have died in Christ, their bodies will be resurrected, their spirits and souls are already with God in heaven. When I was a kid... Pastors used to wax sensational on this, and they used to say, when Jesus comes back, we're going to defy the law of gravity, and we're going to float up, 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 past the airplanes, past the clouds. I have a severe fear of heights. I used to think I won't survive the rapture. (laughs) Gosh, if I had a nickel for every stupid thing preachers have said, I'd be a rich man. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word there for twinkling just means a time frame that can't be divided. Now, you take a second. A second can be divided because we talk about milliseconds. That's a second divided by a thousand. 
But when Jesus comes back, it'll happen so fast. You know, I've had people tell me, you know, in fact, I remember when I was a kid preacher, I'd have friends, high schoolers come up and say, you know what, I don't believe in God, but when I see Jesus come back, I'm going to believe real quick and I'm going to go to heaven. Hey, you won't have that opportunity. Because here's what's going to happen. If you're a child of God, someday you're going to get up in the morning and boom, you're going to be there and you're not going to know how it happened. It's just how God works. It's how he rolls. And so that's going to happen. Now, what I want you to look at now, we're opening up Revelation chapter 4 and we're getting a glimpse of what happens in heaven during the seven-year tribulation period. After this, John writes, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Now, in the Bible, open doors always speak of opportunity and access. Anytime there's an open door, it's God's way of saying, look, I'm giving you a special opportunity. And I love this because when John looks up into heaven, it's not just that there's a door open, it's that it's standing open. Do you remember when Noah was in the ark and how that God had him leave the door open for days after the ark was completed? It's God's way of saying, look, if if you're interested in me, the door is open. I could be talking to somebody here today and say, Mark, I've never been very religious. Hey, put her there. I'm with you. And you say, Mark, I've always struggled with this God thing, and I don't even know if he would accept me. Right now, I can't talk about tomorrow, but right now, the door is standing open in heaven. Now, let's read on. And the voice, remember 1 Thessalonians 4? And the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of a jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Let's talk about that because that is so interesting. John gets into heaven and there is a throne there. And when he looks upon the throne, the glory of the one sitting there is so awesome that John sees these two colors coming right at him. And the colors are like a diamond and a ruby. And we don't hear this much anymore, but every once in a while somebody would say, well, I don't know about, you know, go to New Spring, have all those lights and colors. Hey, you're not going to like heaven very much. <laughs> Telling you. I don't need all that. Well, then just, you don't have to go, I guess. <laughs> God's very much into color. I mean, you read what I read. And you get there, and it's like diamond and ruby. But I'll tell you what I really love. John says, when I looked into heaven, there was a throne, and there was someone sitting on that throne. You know, Nietzsche said, God is dead. And that is the idea that God is no longer a useful hypothesis with this intellectual, superior, well-advanced culture that we're all part of, which I can't really buy into. I am glad to tell you that up in heaven, there is a throne and it's occupied. There is someone sitting there. 
And what makes me smile about that is when I look at the chaos and near anarchy that is going on in our world, and I think about what's going to happen. I think about my kids and my grandkids and you guys and all the wonderful people in our world who are just trying to do the right thing. It does me good to know that up in heaven there is a throne and there is someone sitting on it, and the one on the throne has a plan and has an agenda, and we're right on schedule, and nothing anybody's doing on this earth to screw things up is going to change anything with God's plan. That I'm glad to know. Now, there's one more thing that I like, because this is the throne room that you and I are coming into. Later in the book of Revelation, we read that there is a great white throne, and at the great white throne judgment, everybody who goes there is already going, is already going to hell. They've already made their decisions. So this is a, a judgment of condemnation. Look at the throne that you and I are going to. It's surrounded by a rainbow. Now, green is always the color of life. But this rainbow that surrounds God's throne makes me know this, that I am not coming to a place of judgment. If you're God's child, that judgment took place on the cross. You're not headed for judgment. You're headed for a throne room that is a promise. All the promises that God has ever made to his people are going to come true in this room. Now let's read on in the text. There are 24 elders. Now why is that number significant? Well, in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes. In the New Testament, 12 apostles. Real quickly, and I wish I had time to develop this, I think what John is seeing, you realize all this is future, therefore symbolic. What John is seeing is he is seeing the presence of the representatives of the Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. I've been told some crazy things, as I've already hinted in this message. One of the things that I've been told through the years is, well, people back in the Old Testament were saved by works, and we in this time frame were saved by grace, by faith. Not true. We were all saved the same way. The people of the old covenant were saved by faith in Christ that Jesus was coming, that God would keep his word. You and I are saved by faith that Jesus did come because in the mind of God, Jesus was always slain from the foundation of the earth. So what you have here in Revelation surrounding the throne of God are representatives from the people from the old covenant, Moses, Elijah, Ruth, Esther, all those people. And now they're all of our generation, the church age. So they're surrounding the throne of God. And then there are Well, let me just read this. In verse 5, the Bible says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings. By the way, you realize we sing a song here, the Revelation song. You're going to recognize some of the language. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And that's just, you know how it is sometimes when lightning is in a distance or you can hear the, the, the distant rumblings of the thunder. You can see the distant flashes of lightning. That's from what's going on down on the earth. Verse 6, also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. So while all the craziness is going on, the lightning and the thunder down on the earth, it's very peaceful in the presence of God. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, angels, day and night. They never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now, here's the thing that I notice is that when somebody is worshiping, I want to be part of it. Do you ever feel that new spring? I mean, it's like when the band gets up here, I can't sit down. Because like when they start praising God, I want to join in praising God. So that's what happens in heaven in Revelation. Because when these angels start singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Bible says, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. And they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy 
our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you create all things and by your power they are and were created. Now, why the different song? Real simple. Because see, the angels were around before creation. And so consequently when they sing glory and honor to God, they sing to him as they've always known him. You're the everlasting God. You've always been here. But when you and I get up to sing, we sing glory and honor to you because you created us. See, we were created. And so consequently, we magnify the creation of God. And I don't want to get on a soapbox here today, but guys, let me tell you something. Heaven is, for, heaven is a place for people who believe that God created us. You know, there's nobody singing in heaven, oh, this was such an accident. I don't know how I got here. I deserve to be here. None of that. But all of a sudden it stops. Read with me. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and seal with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth could open the scroll and even look inside of it. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. That probably doesn't mean a thing to you and me unless we understand a little bit of Jewish history. The people of God were given their land as an inheritance from God. And they were never to sell it because it was their inheritance. But from time to time when farming was tough, and some of you guys have farm backgrounds and you know what that's about. When farming got tough, they had to do the unthinkable. They would have to sell off a piece of their land. And sometimes it got so tough that they had to declare bankruptcy and bankruptcy in those days didn't mean protection. And when they sold their land, you do understand, I hinted at the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, the land would all revert back to its rightful owner. But if you're 30 years old and you just lost all your land, when you're 80, getting it back doesn't exactly sound like an exciting prospect. But here's what would happen. If you wound up declaring bankruptcy and you lost your land and you lost your possessions, you'd go down to where the records were kept and two scrolls would be prepared. One scroll would be the embarrassing story of how you lost your inheritance. And then the other scroll would be the terms of redemption, what it would cost to buy it back. Now, you and I need to understand that not just anybody could go and buy back the land because God was concerned that there might be people who are like people here today who watch for bad times to go and cheaply buy up someone else's inheritance, and God was going to give it all back to the rightful owners within 50 years. The only way anybody could be a redeemer was that person had to be qualified and the way they were qualified were, was this. They had to be the nearest male relative who had to be able to redeem 
and be willing because oftentimes if there was the death of a man and the family lost their property and a widow would be left, if it were the widow's choice and if it were the choice of the closest male relative, that male relative would marry her and then redeem all the property that was lost. We just talked about that in the book of Ruth the other day. In time, they stopped using two scrolls. On the backside, they would write the reasons why the land was lost. And on the front side, they would write the terms of redemption. But in order to keep the embarrassment of how it got lost from being apparent, they would roll it up on that side and they would seal it. Now, in heaven... Very clearly what is going on, God is sitting on a throne and everybody's worshiping and having a great time. But all of a sudden, God holds up a scroll and there's no question what's in that scroll. It is the title deed to the earth. It is the redemption, not only of all humankind, it is the redemption of God's plan through the ages. It is the redemption of planet earth. On one side is how it got lost. We know that. Our first parents sinned, and then you and I sinned, and the whole world sinned. So that is how we lost God's inheritance. It was surrendered over to the prince of this world, Satan. But on the other side of the terms of redemption, who would have to be able and what the cost would be in order to redeem us and to redeem this world? And when that scroll was held up, there was nobody in heaven. There was nobody on the earth. There was nobody under the earth who was worthy. What does that mean? Well, God can't do it because he's not our kinsman. He's not human. And all the humans that are there can't do it, whether they're from the old covenant or the new covenant, they can't do it because they're all sinners. And the angels can't do it because they're not our kinsmen. And so John was there in the presence of heaven with this vision going on, and God's standing there, or sitting on the throne, rather, with the title deed to the earth, lost. And John is saying a cry because nobody was worthy to open it. Then, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. I love verse 7. He came and took the scroll. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't that God handed it to him. It is that Jesus comes and takes it. I I sense authority in that. He comes and aggressively takes the scroll. Read, Read on with me. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were having gold, holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That means your prayers are fragrant to God and God collects them. And they sang a new song. Look at this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And the rest of this tells about a choir of a million angels and every voice from all the world singing out praise and glory to Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ has done the one thing that nobody else could do. Not God, 
not human beings. He came, he was God who humbled himself and became human. He laid on a Roman cross. He paid the price for our sins. He rose from the grave and he's not up in heaven as some itinerant carpenter from Nazareth. He is up in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. When you accepted him as your Lord and Savior, he redeemed you. He is in the process of redeeming this earth. And someday this earth is going to be everything that God meant for it to be. And I don't know about you, but I'm headed for chapter 4 and 5. I've heard about people who declared chapter 11. What you don't want to declare is chapter 6 through 18. You say, Mark, I, what do I do? You know, it's so, you know, it's so amazing to me. In, in, in other words, when, 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 when John sees the heaven, he doesn't see a treadmill. God's not saying, you know, get on this treadmill and work your way up here. He just sees a door open. God is opening the door to you right now. He's saying, whoever you are, if you'll come to God and you'll confess that you're not worthy, if you'll, if you'll declare bankruptcy spiritually before him and say, God, I am a sinner, but I believe you love me, and I believe Jesus died for me, and if you accept him as your Lord and Savior, and he'll forgive you of all your sins, and he'll write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you know, someday, who knows, maybe you'll die, and, and you know your spirit will go to be in heaven, and, but when Jesus comes, that's not the end of you. That's just the beginning of your life. It could be that you, you won't even die. I mean, would that be something? If you've made funeral arrangements, you know, you just spent money for nothing. <laughs> I got funeral directors here saying, please don't tell them that. <laughs> but if you want Jesus, you can invite him into your life right now. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. If you want to pray it with me, you can. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose in the grave. I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. If you just pray with me, hang on for a minute. You know, guys, isn't it good to know in this crazy world that he's got your world in his hands? I want you to listen to this up here right back.
That's good news, isn't it? To know he's holding your world in his hands. If you just pray with me to receive Jesus, I want to ask you to do something if you don't mind. If you could stop by guest services out in the lobby or back by the north entrance, I have a gift for you. And probably something that will answer a lot of questions is a DVD and a book I wrote and a coupon for a new Bible. All you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give it to you. Now listen, guys, a word about next week. If you've ever wondered, what's all the 666 thing about? What's the, you know, I've heard about an antichrist and all that. We're going to get real practical next week in, in that regard and, and, and not get spooky or sensational. I'm just going to kind of lay down for you what's going to go down on earth. And uh, while we've looked at Jesus and his kingdom, we're going to take a look at the other side next week. Really, really big. I think you're going to see a lot of things going on in our world today. And if you ever, like, scratch your head at some of the craziness, I think it'll make sense. So glad you're here today. Have a safe and happy fourth, and we'll see you next weekend. God bless.